Well, you can take your Bibles this morning and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, We're going to look at the last few verses of this chapter, beginning with verse uh, 36. We didn't get into the last uh, few verses here our last time, so we'll pick up where we left off. And this morning in this passage, we're going to really focus on some of the main themes that have kind of been running through the epistle of the Corinthians, and they again are just, they just come out here in our text, and they're applied to the local church. And we're going to just call this message, Building a Godly Church. Building a, building a Godly Church. It's an old, I don't know, I'll just tell you something I heard once. Once at a church picnic, a lady brought a stack of apples, set them on one of the tables, and just put a little sign that said, take only one apple, please. God is watching. You know, just encouraging some sharing, right? Maybe a little (laughs) heavy-handed. A clever 10-year-old saw that sign, and he got to thinking. And at the other end of the table was a plate of cookies. So he had an idea, and he quick scribbled out a sign. He set it by the cookies. His sign read, take all the cookies you want. God is watching the apples. <laughs> so, <laughs> we can see the humor in that, and we could just imagine a little 10-year-old like getting his wheels turning like, hey, you know, I think I can use this to my advantage. If God's watching the apples, let's, what's going on over here? And I share that little joke because it it does help to kind of paint the picture of when a person doesn't think right about God, they're going to reach the wrong conclusion. You know, in his little mind, he's thinking God's watching over there, so how can God possibly see over here? You know, yeah, his mom and dad could watch one side at a time, right? But God is unlimited and boundless, and he sees all, knows all, knows every heart, and we know that about God. He's omniscient and omnipresent and uh, omnipotent, all-powerful. He's all these things. And as, the, as a Christian, that's kind of a, a challenge for us always as we grow in our walk with the Lord, is always more and more appreciating and realizing the attributes of God. Because ultimately, how we view God is going to shape our Christian life. And I think as we come to 1 Corinthians this morning, this is ultimately what Paul was trying to do. He was trying to help them come along in their understanding of who God is so that they would bring that into their lives, bring that into their church lives even. Here again, Paul has been dealing with problems in their public times of worship together. They came together as a church and in their time of speaking God's truth, speaking God's word and praying and singing It was chaotic. People were talking over each other. People didn't want to wait a turn. All these kinds of things were going on, causing big problems. And Paul is redirecting them ultimately back to God. Is this what God wants? Is this who God is when we do these things? And as he reorients them, he's basically taking an ungodly church that's really struggling, and he's reorienting them to the principles that make a godly church that can really reach out and win the lost and be a testimony for Christ in the world today. And as we look at these few verses here this morning, we're just going to point out four basic needs 
that every church needs to be a godly church. I'm not saying that's an exhaustive list, but there's certainly four here that Paul points out. And it's the need for humility, the need for God's word, the need for each member of the body of Christ, and the need for God's very character to be real in our lives. And of course, it's the indwelling Holy Spirit that makes all this possible for the Christian today. You can't say anything about the Christian life without realizing and recognizing the Holy Spirit's work in each one of us. Uh, But that is not in our immediate context. It goes back in Corinthians. But the whole point was for this group of people to be a church, a temple, if you were, that would honor the Lord and bring glory to Him. That's Paul's desire. When you read through this epistle... I hope as we've been going through this, and I hope even if as you read it, you see his heart. He just wanted the best for them. And this is part of the best for them as he goes into their, again, their public church times together. Let's begin, and first of all, we'll just read through verses 36 through 40. He writes to them, Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. So as you look closer at verse 36, again, the apostle writes, did the word of God come from you originally? Were you the only ones that it reached? Were you the only ones? And what Paul is speaking here to here is really their need for humility as a church. Uh, based on that verse, we kind of assume that they thought we're the only ones. We've got a corner on the truth. You know, they may have been, they may have had that mentality like, well, we're the only ones standing for the truth out here. You know, we're the only ones. We're the only ones that really know what God's grace is about. You know, kind of puffing that chest out like, well, we're the only ones. You know, that's dangerous ground. They had a lack of humility. Humility. It comes out through the whole epistle. Humility is really seeing ourselves for who we are, you know, before the Lord. It's not us. It's not us, right? We sang in our Sunday school time this morning, uh, He is able. And I know I botched it up at the end a little bit, and we joked, you know, uh, we're not able, but thank goodness he is able. We were joking about that in Sunday school a little bit. That's humility. That's the recognition of that. God is able. I need him every hour. I need him every minute. That's the spirit of humility. And humility for the the Christian, you know, it's it's like in the game of Monopoly. If you don't pass go, you know, you don't get the $200, right? You need to pass go in Monopoly. For the Christian... It's humility. You need to get to humility first. That's, that's what unlocks everything else, a humble spirit before the Lord, because humility receives from God. Pride, the Bible says, resist. Pride is resistant to input, even from God. But humility receives. This is something Paul was wrestling with with the Corinthians. They need to be humble. Look at what they thought about themselves again. Did the word of God come originally from you? In other words, did they, did they create the gospel? Did they start the gospel? The answer is no. Matter of fact, in this section of Scripture, one of the things that Paul's doing is he is defending his apostleship. 
they were ignoring him. And he, he is, as he calls himself, the apostle to the Gentiles. He was sent out with God's message of grace into the Gentile world, including ancient Greece where Corinth was located. Paul brought it to them originally. And then others, along with Paul, helped to establish the gospel in their region. And the church was planted by Paul and the, and the help of other members of the body of Christ. So he's kind of defending his apostleship as well. That's been coming out in this epistle. In their pride, they were even ignoring the very apostle of God. Ignoring that, right? That's, that's not good, as we can understand. So he says, did the word of God come originally from you? You had to receive it to start. And they opened their hearts to the gospel. It changed their lives, helped you know, turn them from their paganism, their idolatry, to Jesus Christ, to the God the Father, and begin to unleash the grace of God in, in their hearts. But they were forgetting how they got started. And then he says, was it you only that it reached? Again, the gospel went out into all these different regions. They weren't the only ones. They weren't the only ones. Again, any church today that thinks it has a corner on the truth is on dangerous ground. It's not a spirit of humility. Christians today who think they are better than all other Christians around, that's dangerous ground. That's the ground of pride and arrogance. That's the ground the devil lives on. That was his ultimate sin, that of pride. And so we always have that warning before us. You know, pride says, my way. But humility says, God's way. Humility is open and receives God's way. The flesh steps aside, if you will, and truth can come in. That's how humility works for the Christian and why it's so absolutely vital to the Christian life. I like something that John Bunyan wrote in Pilgrim's Progress. He said, a little poem, He that is down needs fear no fall. He that is low, no pride. He that is humble ever shall have God to be his guide. Again, he that is down needs fear no fall. He that is low, no pride. He that is humble ever shall have God to be, on his, to be his guide. Again, I think that captures the spirit of humility there, that we're allowing God to lead the way, God to direct us. So for the Corinthians, Paul has to remind them, you received the truth. It came to you. You didn't create it. You didn't start it. You didn't corner the market on it. But their behavior was beginning to show that that's kind of how they were thinking, their attitude. Again, we don't need nobody else. We don't need Paul. Who's Paul? We know what we're doing here. We've got the answers. And I could just imagine Paul saying, if you've got all the answers, then why is your life a mess? <laughs> Where, where's the proof of your answers? All the problems they had, but humility was a key one. They put themselves first, as we've seen throughout the epistle. So they have the need for humility. And when you have humility, then you can receive God's word. And that's the second need we want to talk about, the need for God's word. That sounds like the most basic sentence we could utter, right? A Christian needs the Bible. <laughs> A Christian needs God's word. Let's look at verse 37. He says, If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. And in verse 38, But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Again, Paul is dealing with 
the supernatural sign gifts of the day, right? And he's specifically talking about prophecy and speaking in tongues. And he's laid out guidelines, right? We're not going to talk over each other. We're going to take turns. And, and he's, been, he's been guiding them in the usage of these, of these gifts. But here he says, If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge the things which I write to you are commandments of the Lord. What's he saying there? He's saying a true prophet in your church... One, if, if one really is spiritually mature, like everyone's claiming to be, one of the ways you'll tell that is, they're going to listen to what I say. They're going to listen to God's apostle who is sharing God's word. Right? You know, it's, if, if a Christian came up to you today and thought themselves to be really enlightened and spiritual and didn't read God's word, didn't really pay much attention to God's word, what would be your assessment of that? Would you really believe they're all that spiritually mature if they're not even looking at God's word? You would say, no way. There's no way. This is God's truth. This is God's way and his will for us today, right? It's right here. So a spiritual individual lives by this. They humble themselves before God. And they look here and they see, this is God's way. This is the best for me. God loves me. I'm going to trust that. I'm going to live here. I'm going to live from the truths that God has revealed to me. I need his truth. I don't have it in and of myself. I don't have the answers. He has the answers. It's in the person of Jesus Christ and in the message of his word. So notice what they were doing. In their pride, they were, they were no longer heeding the apostle who had came to them in the first place with the gospel, thinking now they know better. We know better than you. We got it. Thank. We'll take it from here. You know that attitude, right? But Paul says, but what I'm telling you is the commandments of the Lord. What I'm telling you is God's revealed truth. A lot of the things that Paul was telling them, he was writing them down so that through inspiration they would be true for us now. We would have them today to read and shape our lives by the principles of God's word. So here we see that again, that need for God's word. We're never in a place where we don't need that anymore. The Christian should continually go back to the word, continually meditate and reflect on the truths of God, and let the Spirit of God work in their heart to bring these truths home to the heart that they change our lives. The The Corinthians, they saw themselves as spiritual giants. You know, they were going around saying things like, all things are lawful for me because I got the grace of God. I can do whatever I want. Thank you very much. And Paul says, man, you're using that like a club. He says, all things may be lawful, but they're certainly not all profitable. And he reminds them of the principles of grace and love and what the Christian life's really about. It's not just about you flaunting your glorious liberty in Christ for your own self-edification, but it's about what do I do to help others around me? Again, that's humility. That's God's word at work in the heart. So they, they probably envisioned themselves as spiritual giants. We're spiritual, we're mature, we have the answers, we know, we know what's going on. And Paul, back in 1 Corinthians 3.1, that way back in 3.1, you know what he said to him? He said, I can't speak to you as spiritual, but as carnal or fleshly, as to babes in Christ. You know, sometimes you have to be blunt with people, right? <laughs> sometimes you just have to say, look, what you're doing is immature. This is not what God wants. It's clearly not laid out in his scripture, his desire, his will. And that's what Paul had to do with the Corinthians. He had to be blunt and say, no, you're acting like babies in Christ. 
But if you can just get back to the principles of real grace and real love in your heart, you can be mature. You can live out maturity. And again, he's painting the picture in this chapter about what a godly church could look like when it comes together. People are recognizing each other's gifts. People are given an opportunity to share what God's been doing. There's prayer. There's singing. But it's orderly. It's, it's, it's the way God would want it to be so that it best reflects his character. So we have an imperative as Christians to hold fast to God's word, God's revealed truth through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This book, it's all, it's, it's all we've got to hold on to, really, in this earthly life. You know, ultimately, God has given us two things in this world as a Christian. He's given us the book, which is the Bible, his inspired word. and We hold, it, we hold to it fast, right? And he's also given us the body. He's given us members of Christ that can help us in our growth. He's given us two things in this world that are tangible. Everything else is spiritual. I'm not saying he doesn't work in our life and his providential hand. Don't get me wrong, but he's given us two things. The book and the body so that we may grow in him. It's upon the Bible that we build our lives. It's the Bible that gives us the truth about our great God and Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Bible that explains man's condition where sin came from, where death came from. And it's the Bible that gives us God's solution in Jesus Christ. The Christian will be powerless without it. Without the Bible, we'd be utterly lost. And one of the things that Paul is challenging them on, it's, and it's a thing that any Christian could hear today and probably learn something about, it certainly goes on, but we need to be reminded as Christians that we don't get our truth from the world. We don't look out and see what the world's doing and be like, okay, maybe we should do what they're doing. Maybe they're on the right track. The Corinthians were looking to worldly wisdom, philosophy, answers from the world, and trying to, trying to merge that with, with their Christianity, and it was getting them really off track. There's always that challenge for us, again, to always hold fast the truth of God's word, and not let the world be the influence. As Paul talks about in Romans 12, 2, where he tells us to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind to let the truth take hold in our heart, that we live out the good and perfect, acceptable will of God. So we must cling to the truth. We must cling to what the Lord has given us in the Bible. And then in verse 38, Paul says, But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. It's kind of a fun verse, right? If anyone's ignorant, let them be ignorant. (laughs) Not my problem. It sounds like he's saying, not my problem. (laughs) What he's saying here, though, is that if somebody in their church did reject Paul, did reject the truth of God's word, that person was being willfully ignorant of the truth. And if such a person in their church, and he's probably got in mind leaders, so-called prophets, because it's in the context. He's talking about people in their church. He says, if somebody wants to be so willfully ignorant that they're going to reject what I say and reject the truth of God's word, then what's his judgment? Let them be ignorant. In other words, ignore them. Ignore them. If they're going to be ignorant, then let them be ignorant. And it's almost like somewhere else. Ignore the willfully ignorant is how I would paraphrase that verse. If there's a Bible person that stands up, a teacher or something like that, it's a leader, and they're willfully ignorant of God's truth, they're teaching something worldly, they're teaching something way off base, Paul's admonition is you ignore that and you go back to the Word. You go back to people who are about the truth of God's Word. That's what he's basically saying. There were obviously going to be some in that church that 
were just so entrenched in their ways, they, they weren't going to have the humility to receive the truth of God through, through Paul, through the word. So his admonition is, if they're going to be ignorant, let them be ignorant. You ignore them, you move on from them. That's basically what's being said there. We don't want to be heeding those that are willfully ignorant to God's truth. No prophet or leader was to be followed who rejected the truth from the Lord through Paul. And again, for us, none of us should really waste time on professing Christians, or professing Christian leaders, rather, who choose to ignore scriptures, who just want to talk about something else and get their truth somewhere else. That's just going to throw people off. It's going to get us on the wrong track. Someone once wrote and quoted Winston Churchill, Men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing had happened. The quote goes on, That may be a common response to truth, but it places those who respond thusly on the road to tragedy and destruction. There is no way to love and follow God without loving and following truth. The two cannot be separated. Sometimes I fear that's true with Christians, that we trip over the truth and get up and run off like nothing happened. Like, you know, but no, God puts Scripture before our eyes. The Holy Spirit uses that Scripture to speak to our hearts, and God brings about transformation, changes our lives. Always remember that God loved you enough to save you where you're at, but he loves you too much to leave you where you're at in your Christian life. He's always calling you closer into his fellowship, a more intimate and deep Christian life through his word and through how it challenges our thinking and changes our heart. We have a desperate need for the, for the word of God. Paul goes on in verse 39, he says, Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Paul is keeping a balance in this portion of Scripture, chapters 12, 13, and 14, again, he's dealing with the subject of the supernatural sign gifts and how they should use them in their church. And again, the Corinthian issue was tongues, 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 right? And, and, and people are speaking in languages, and nobody understands what's being said, and nobody's interpreting. And again, what's the point? Nobody's taking anything home with them. Nobody's receiving truth. They're just seeing things go on, and then they go home virtually unaffected. That's the problem, right? But Paul keeps a balance here. He, he never says the gifts are bad because he always sees gifts as a blessing work in the Christian life. God gifts his people to do his ministry. And in this time it was, in the, in, in part of it was through these more supernatural sign gifts that were demonstrable miracles in the moment. But he keeps that balance there and, and because he recognizes that if you would to suppress people's gifts completely and never let them use their gifts for the Lord, you're basically suppressing members of the body of Christ. You're basically thwarting God's plan for the body. So you can't go to that extreme where you're just trying to shut everything down. They were over on this extreme where only one group is getting their time and nobody else can say anything and nobody's going home edified. They were on that extreme. So Paul brings them to balance. He doesn't come over here and say, all these gifts are stinky, we don't want any of these. No, he doesn't say that, he says they're good. He says, I hope you do still desire to use your gifts. You should desire to use gifts for the Lord. He gave them to you for his glory and his purposes. 
So again, in verse 39, he says, Desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak with tongues. He chooses his words carefully for the Corinthians because they put tongues here, and they had prophecy down here somewhere. And he says, no, you should desire to prophesy, but don't forbid tongues. He puts them more on equal footing, a balanced approach to the body, okay? But in, in what he's saying, though, again, you see... He knows ultimately we're a body of believers. And God has gifted each one different, has put different things in different people's abilities and talents and so forth, and callings. And he wants to use us in diverse ways, but, also, but always with unity. And that's what he's calling the Corinthians to. So it's not, you don't become anti-gift or anything like that, but you find the balance. How can we operate in a way where each member of the body of Christ can shine and, be, and bring glory to God. That's the heart of this verse here. The church, a godly church, has a desperate need for every member of the body of Christ because God has specifically given each member of the body of Christ a way to glorify Him. And Paul wanted that to come to light. So verse 39 affirms the value of these spiritual gifts. Paul said something very similar to begin the chapter back in verse 1. He said, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. And now he ends in a very similar manner. But we see in this whole book of 1 Corinthians, we see the tendency, and really it's a tendency any person has. You take what God has blessed you with, you take a blessing of God and you can misuse it. You can abuse it. You can use it for your own glory. You can use it for your own ambition, your own self-glorification. You know, what we can sometimes do is we take something God's given us and we use it for E-G-O instead of G-O-D. Right? You like that? I don't know. Write that down. No. We use it for E-G-O instead of G-O-D. We use it for ego instead of God. That's what a lot of people do with gifts. That's That's the tendency of the flesh where pride comes in. What were the Corinthians doing? Puffed up with stuff. Puffed up with God's blessings. Using it as a hammer in their churches, you know, basically. In their church life together. Paul again calls it, no, this is about other-centeredness. We're serving the Lord. We're serving God with these things. It's about being a blessing and encouragement to others. So this verse calls us today to continue to use God's blessings in God's way for God's glory and the strengthening of God's people. Now, I still fully believe that God gifts his people today. I don't believe he's given us gifts of supernatural revelatory prophecy or speaking in tongues for the reasons we've outlined before. Those were for a time to establish certain things God was revealing in that time. But God still is a giving God, he still gives. He gives pastor teachers to shepherd. He gives missionaries to establish churches. He gives evangelists to win people to the Lord. He gives the gift of encouragement to uplift others. He gives the gift of giving to be able to bless others. He gives the gift of mercy or compassion to take care of others and a host of other things. And some of those things are articulated clearly in Paul's writings. God gives so that we can use his blessings for the body, for others. That's the point. But, the, but we need each other. We, we, a godly church works toward being a place where people can use their gifts to bring God glory and strengthen God's people. That's what a godly church is about. 
A preacher's little boy once asked his dad, Daddy, I notice every Sunday morning when you first come out to preach, you sit up on the platform and bow your head. What are you doing? Well, the father explained, I'm asking the Lord to give me a good sermon. And the little boy said, then why doesn't he? Yeah, it's, it's, it's part of my testimony. No, that's good. no, again, our God is a giving God. Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Again, it all comes from God. That's, that's a Pauline theological worldview. It all comes to God, from God. You have something to give? Credit God. You have an ability you can bring God glory with? Credit to God. He gave it to you. That's what the Bible says, very plainly. He gives, and he continues to give. And the the goal is to use those gifts to bless and bring glory to him. I've said before, I think it was the Christmas Eve service a while back, but I was talking about how much I enjoy jigsaw puzzles. You know, around wintertime, you know, it's cold outside and holidays. we We like to get jigsaw puzzles out, you know. Ten, you know, about the thousand-word piece ones, you know, and we've got particular ones we really like. But I'm going to tell you, if I get a puzzle, and we get to the end, and we're missing a piece, <laughs> I come undone. <laughs> I search the house. I, like, oh, I become very zealous <laughs> to complete the puzzle because it's just something about leaving it uncompleted, you know. It's like, no, we're missing a piece. We're missing something here. I'm zealous for every piece of that thousand-piece puzzle, I want every, every one of those pieces is numbered by me. <laughs> I want to know where each one is. It's got a place, and I want it in its place. So I become annoyed if we're missing a piece. There was this one time, a few years back, we had a puzzle. Maybe I've told you the story, but we, we did the puzzle, and, and uh, I remember it had pumpkins in it and things, and we got to the end, and sure enough, there's one piece missing. And you're looking under the table, and you're looking under the box, and okay, did, we, did, I, did I get it on my sleeve? Did I knock it off? And you're looking around, you're looking around. No puzzle piece. It's just missing. And it's right there. I'm like, ah, oh, you know. I had a little more free time back then. Um, <laughs> so what I did is I took the puzzle box, I scanned it into the computer, I worked at the scaling, I printed a sheet out when I thought it was about the same size as the puzzle, I glued that to a piece of cardboard about the same thickness of the puzzle, I meticulously cut out the piece to fit in the puzzle, and it worked, <laughs> and I still have that somewhere. It wasn't perfect, it wasn't perfect, but it, it, it was satis- satisfactory. I was, I was able to sleep that night, because <laughs> I had completed the puzzle. I tell that story because it's funny, and, uh, but you know, I think that's kind of, that reflects so the zealousness that God has for each member of his body. I mean, if somebody's not functioning right, God is going to go to work. No, we're going to get you functioning. Well, and he'll bring other members in, bring the truth in, the Holy Spirit's working. But God is zealous for each member to be growing in godliness, using their gifts for his glory. We need each other. We need each member of the body. And that's what Paul's reminder to them. Because, again, they were, they were basically steamrolling each other. No, we need each other. And then finally he comes to verse 40. He says, let all things be done decently and in order. This is like his summary statement. Let all things be done decently and in order. He's explained that. He's explained why they had gifts like tongues. He's explained his 
guidelines on how he thinks they should best function with those gifts in that time. Take turns, two or three, two or three, take turns. Let's do it this way. But the issue ultimately for Paul is if you look back up in verse 33 of our passage, he had told them just a little bit ago, he says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. God is a God of peace. So then what should the church be characterized by? Peace. How are people going to know God is a God of peace if they can't see it in you? Maybe too often as Christians, we always just want people to take us at a, take us at a, if we start over, we, we always want people to take us at our word, but not pay much attention to how we live. Do we live out peace? Do we live in peace? And you could just take any attribute of God and plug it in that idea. Take the idea of grace. Do we really believe in the grace of God? Does that showcase in our life that we really believe in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? What about his love? Plug in any attribute. Do we really live like we believe those things about God? Do we reflect God's character? Because that's our need. That's, Paul says God is a God of peace. Therefore, we're going to do things decently and orderly, and we're going to do things peacefully. Because the way we do things, we're reflecting who our God is. That's our fourth need here. We need God's character. And if we're going to add on to that statement, we need God's character to become our character. To become that which we are characterized by, both individually and as a church. We are his temple. We showcase the glory of God to the world. This is some, these are things Paul has said in this very epistle. So the choices we make and the actions we take reflect what we believe about God. And we're showing the world we are living a message, some way or somehow, some form. We're living a message always. Paul's reminding the Corinthians of that. You're living out, you're, you're, the message you live out is not in agreement with the message you're preaching. They're at odds with one another. Because they're preaching the grace of God, but they're living as babes in Christ. We'll just say that again. We need God's character to becoming our character. This is what the Holy Spirit is working toward in each Christian life, to conform each individual to the image of Christ and thereby spiritually growing each member and then spiritually growing the body as a local church and the body of Christ in the universal sense. It's about coming together to shine forth God's glory today as his temple, as his ambassadors. We're called to do this in God's power, for God's glory, to show the world who God is. So that's why he says we do this decently in order, because that's, God is a God of decency. God is a God of order. He ordered the very universe. You know, that's something that's very interesting when you consider creation and people who wrestle with whether they believe in God, if they're atheistic or theistic. You know, one of the things sometimes that comes up is you, you look at the world and you look at the complexity of human DNA, or you look at all the, the physiological constants in the universe, like the force of gravity, and, and you look at all these things, and, and, and it's like there, there's so many different variables that if just one was a hair different, the universe would cease to exist. The way atoms interact, and if you're familiar with 
quantum mechanics and, and atoms, and you may not be, but anyway, at the, at the middle of each atom, there are protons and neutrons sticking together, and they're still not able to explain why they stick together. They ought to be flying apart. When they do fly apart, you get a nuclear explosion, by the way. But, but there's some force holding that together. It's just it's dialed in precisely so that all atomic, all atoms act a certain way, chemistry works, everything works right. Otherwise, there'd be no sun, there'd be no matter, there'd be nothing. And there's, there's, there's literally like dozens, if not hundreds, of these physiological constants that scientists can enumerate. And every one you look at it, it's like it's, it's, like it's been dialed in to a fraction just to make all the universe exist, to be able to make life on earth exist. There's an orderliness to creation. And, and I'm convinced that without God, there's no explanation for anything for the universe. But God is a God of order. So as a church, Paul wants us to reflect his goodness, his grace, his love. Again, how we think about who God is in our lives is usually how we're going, it's usually going to shape the way we live. If we think that God is always up in this heaven shaking his head at somebody, somebody did something wrong again, I'm just so disappointed, and he's always shaking his head. If that's a Christian, that's how they view God, how's that Christian probably going to live? That Christian is probably going to start to tend to shake their head every time somebody around them has a struggle, has a failure, and we're going to put up these walls, and we're going to, we're going to become hardened to people. What about a Christian that um, thought about God? His view of God is, God doesn't really care about the details of my life. How is that Christian going to begin to think about their lives and about the needs of others? If God doesn't care, why should I? If God doesn't care about the details of my life, why should I care about the details of somebody else's lives? What if a Christian has a poor view of God's holiness? How might that Christian look at sin? It's not that big a deal. It doesn't hurt anybody. It doesn't do anything wrong, right? What about a Christian who has a poor view of God's love? How might that, how might that Christian t- treat somebody that does struggle with some kind of a sin or something? They may become calloused. We live out our faith. What we believe about God is almost definitely going to be how we tend to live in our lives. Again, throughout this epistle, especially in this chapter, I see the Apostle Paul calling Christians to have a full, balanced, and biblical view of God and what God is doing so they can fully understand and appreciate His grace so they would become grace-filled Christians. Using their blessings to serve others and bring God glory. Let's close with that. Father, we are just thankful for your love. We recognize our needs. We share the same needs as this church did long ago where we always need humility. We always need your word. We always need each other. We need the body. And we need your character to become our character in our life. May the spirit continue to work that in each one of our lives. May we go from here with your word at home in our hearts with a desire to just make Christ known through both our the message we speak and the message we live. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.